Hi, welcome to the Lakeland Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Jesse Keller, and I'm joined with uh, Matt Heisel again. Thanks for coming back on the program. Hey, glad I could do this today. Wanted to talk about some things that I learned at a conference that I recently went to. And we're not going to talk about stroke today, which got me caught me off guard a little bit. Well, you know what? We, we can't always do the things that we love. Um, <laughs> so in this case, I, I had to go to this conference <clears throat> in Costa Rica um, so that I could learn more things to uh, teach you guys as residents. Uh, and some of these I just haven't, I wanted to put at the beginning of a lecture somewhere along the way, but with our new focus 30-minute lectures, just haven't really had a chance to uh, uh, to put them in. So one of the things that I learned was was talking about IOs. Now, Jesse, where do you typically put your IOs when you typically do them? You know, I, 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 was, I usually go humorous, um, and um, just because I had one guy market to me how much fast, I know they're faster than the tibia. I don't know what the rates are, but I just figure faster is better if you can get more fluid, and I've had some success with proximal humerus. So you're definitely one up on me because uh, I always just put them in the tibia because it's easier, which honestly, looking at these at the numbers at the numbers they presented, um, both of the things that we've said uh, are borne out, that tibia IOs are placed correctly about 80% of the time in the series they looked at, whereas the humeral ones were placed correctly only 50% of the time. And I would say that kind of jives of kind of clinical, kind of what we see a lot of times getting these patients uh, from the pre-hospital phase. It seems like a lot of times the humeral ones end up in the uh, in the joint and are a little bit too cephalad. Uh, but if you get it incorrectly, the flow rate that the humeral uh, IO can take is five liters an hour, whereas your tibial can only take one liter an hour. So you're just not going to be able to bolus through the tibia. Uh, so I think the take-home would be that if you're putting in an IO in the trauma bay and you've got kind of that skinny little later where you can really feel the anatomy, take Jesse's approach and go in the humeral. Uh, if you've got any doubt, then you can take my uh, less brave approach of usually going tibia. But No, I think you're right. In, in knowing the body habit is to guide your decision, I think makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that you found a way around is when the internal jugular and the carotid are not side by side like the where they're supposed to be on netters and they're 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 right on top of each other. And if you're like me and you back wall the jugular on a double digit percentage of people and you get your uh, you get your flash as you come slowly <laughs> retract pulling the needle back, um, it's best not to have big A sit, sitting right behind the uh, right behind the uh, the jugular. Um, so what they were talking about was that the farther you turn your head to the side, the more that that IJ gets pulled over top the carotid. Um, so what you may find is that if you're getting kind of weird positioning, that you've got a section where the jugular is widest and juiciest, for lack of a better term, uh, but the carotid is right behind it, you may be able to turn their head back a little bit towards midline, and you lose a little bit of that classic triangle that we all learned in terms of the anatomy, but when you're using ultrasound, that triangle is less uh, important anyways, uh, and get a better view by just rotating the head a little bit back towards mi midline. I feel silly for never have tried that. I'm always You'd trying think to... That we would have noticed this over the years, and I'm going to guess there's some residents who are going to say, well, yeah, how did you guys not know that? But what are you going to do? We're old. Now, here we got some some ortho pearls of wisdom from this conference, too. What do you got? Yeah, and I'm going to say up front that I think that there's nothing I'm weaker at than ortho. So again, some of this may be a review. We all know supracondylar fractures are significant fractures and that uh, displaced ones can have uh, big problems. Uh, I didn't realize how often it was. 
that 10 to 20% of the time you're bagging brachial artery and 10 to 20% of the time uh, you're going to get a neurologic deficit, um, which obviously there's, there's small supraconal fractures and more significant ones. They were really kind of reiterating kind of the old um, approach, which was displaced supraconal fractures really should be admitted. That's not always easy to do. So what, is there anything that we can kind of help to push that direction? Because I know well, I'm always faced with this difficult decision. The first part is, is doing a good exam. And it kind of it's, it's worth reviewing because this is something that I forget as well in terms of kind of the uh, best way to examine the hand. That the sensation, uh, if you push on three places, uh, you don't even necessarily need to know which nerve they correspond to. But if you can always push on these three places and see if they're feeling it normally, then you've examined uh, all three of the nerves, radial, ulnar, and median. If you can feel over the, and this is this refers, the first two refer to the palmar surface of the hand, that if you have normal light touch sensation over the pinky finger tip and on the index finger tip, uh, then you know that ulnar and median nerve are intact. Uh, what these uh, lecturers were recommending was that the place for the radial nerve that has the least overlap with other ones is on the dorsal surface of the hand in the um, uh, in the web between the thumb and the first finger. Uh, so pushing those three, lightly touching those three places, little finger on the palmar aspect, index finger on the palmar aspect, and the back of the web uh, between the thumb and the first finger, then you've examined all of, the, then you've uh, done focused exams on each of the three nerves uh, of the hand. That the um, uh, motor exam, uh, radial exam, uh, the radial nerve, uh, dorsiflexing the wrist, um, ulnar exam, the lateral interossei, uh, when you have a person spread their fingers out, and then to get median nerve, making the AOK sign and not being able to pull your finger through the thumb and the index finger. So if you can tell the person to flex their hand back, spread their fingers wide, make the OK sign, then again, you've done all three of the, uh, of the motor uh, nerves uh, function testing, and regardless of whether you remember specifically which nerve it is, uh, you've covered all three. It kind of looked like a secret handshake that you just were. I feel bad that we don't have video. To we're show. doing emergency medicine gang science up here in the uh, in the uh, education in department the po- in the podcast booth. <laughs> um, I, no, I, and I and I was surprised with how many had neuro deficits. I mean, I think you said that earlier that you know that they're actually ten to twenty percent in their series had either artery or nerve, and you, when you think about the the number of kids we see fall on the playground, um, we easily see 10 supracondylar fractures every year. Uh, and so at least one and maybe two of those patients can have complication. All right, now we're going to move on to, to knees. And we talked a little bit about knees, a kind of a similar sort of thing that that um, we all know that popliteal artery injuries are real. Uh, and in the series they presented, 20 to 40% of patients can have popliteal artery injuries. You can also have uh, some uh, motor uh, uh, nerve findings as well. But the really thing that this reminded me was that 10% of their patients with popliteal artery injuries had good pulses. Um, so a lot of times we kind of do kind of a quick and dirty if-then kind of approach to emergency medicine. That if they have a pulse, well, then they can't have um, the bad thing that we're thinking about. Situation, we'll talk about another one in a few minutes, that preserved pulse isn't always reassuring, that you can have partial dissections that are going to get worse. You can't put all your stock in saying they have a, they have a peripheral pulse, um, and so I'm done from a popliteal artery injury.
So you, you really need to start just getting angios on. If these. twenty to 40, I mean knee knee uh, dislocations are not common injuries, and if twenty to forty percent of patients are going to have arterial injuries, yeah, we're not we're not going to be too worried about contrast loads on a population wide basis with this bad of an injury in a physical exam. That's not necessarily always. Uh, completely reassuring. So you could be thinking you're trying to avoid radiation or, or contrast or maybe doing an ultrasound when really you're not doing him any favors in the long run. You're probably better off just doing the just doing the CT angio. Okay, and then you, you, you had some more um, pearls of wisdom for compartment syndrome, everybody's favorite and a everybody's board favorite. question. And I, and I actually got one of the board questions wrong on my research exams. Um, we'll talk about some of the different pressures involved. Uh, but the first take-home is that what compartment syndrome is, is that the pressure is great enough that you can't get flow in capillaries first. So you can't get gas and tissue and what have you, uh, exchange of nutrients and uh, lactate and what have you. And so you have problems in that compartment. But... Arterial pressure is higher than what that compartment pressure is. And so you can still have arterial flow passing through that compartment. And the most common one is the anterior shin, that anterior uh, compartment in the lower leg, that you can still have pulses going through that, blood flow going through there, and have a good pulse of the foot because the artery uh, may have enough pressure to be able to get through the compartment pressure, whereas the pressures in the compartment are not enough uh, to allow for micro uh, function of blood vessels. And so it's another situation where distal pulses aren't completely reassuring. Obviously, check for them, um, but just realize even though they're there, they're not necessarily a guarantee this patient is fine. In terms of those exact numbers, and one of these numbers was on my board exam, um, and I'm pretty sure I got it wrong. If the difference between the diastolic pressure and the compartment pressure is greater than 30, that's the number you're looking for. That's the trigger for fasciotomy. Um, that capillary flow is basically going to stop at around 20. Um, and so if that difference is greater than 30, then that's kind of truly the definition for uh, a fasciotomy. That you can't just purely go from the number you get in the striker. You need to at least think about what my uh, patient's blood pressure is to kind of apply it to that patient and kind of help determine the significance of uh, the pressure that you're seeing. Awesome. Well, let's do a real quick review. When it comes to IOs, what what are we more likely to place correctly? More likely to place correctly tibial. But what's going to but if we can get it in correctly when it comes to how much volume we can infuse through it? You get 5 times more through the humeral. Um, and then the other thing is you're doing an ultrasounded guided central line. You're, gonna, you're doing the, the IJ. What do I, what, what are something I can do to try and get these to, 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 to lay you side by side? You may be able to bring the head back to midline so that the IJ isn't pulled across it the way that happens when we turn the head uh, significantly to the side. And we've got our, our supracondylar fracture. What are, what are the, what's the exam? What's, what's the documentation we need to know about? And what are the injuries we're concerned about? Light touch sensation on the palmar surface of the little finger, of the index finger, and then light touch sensation on the dorsal aspect of the web space between the thumb and the first finger tests the sensory uh, side of the nerves. And then for motor exam, wrist extension, the lateral finger interossei function, so spreading of your fingers, and then first finger to thumb uh, apposition, so the OK sign. If they can do all three of those, they're at least right now um, neurovascular, or rather uh, neurologically intact. 
And then what's that called when you have decreased blood flow? It, the, over the thing time, you're trying you get, to avoid is the Volkman's ischemic contracture, which I guarantee you a third of you get on your boards. That's right. And then um, for knee dislocations, we feel a good pulse. We're done. We're, 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 we're convinced ourselves there's no arterial injury yeah, with that so good pulse. Not so fast, my friend. Just remember, 10% of the popliteal artery injuries in at least this series that they presented had a pulse and yet had a had an injury. And same thing with compartment syndrome. If I've got that nice bounding pulse in the leg, I don't have to worry about compartment syndrome, right? In theory, yes, but in practice, arterial flow is higher than compartment flow, and so you may still have to break out that striker. And what's the difference between the diastolic and compartment pressures that we need to be concerned about? 30 was the number they, they gave for at which point you would do a fasciotomy um, because the capillary flow is going to stop somewhere around in the range of 20. Excellent. Well, thanks for being on the program. Hopefully, uh, people benefit from these uh, pearls of wisdom. And I can keep justifying trips to Central America. That sounds good.